Welcome to Bitstorm, a comedy game design podcast by two guys who know nothing about comedy nor game design. I'm Bitslinger. With me, as always, is Trevor Scott. Hello. Hello. How are we? Yes, good, good. Uh, and so we, we've just been discussing what we're going to do on this week's episode, and that is that we're going to do something a little bit different. We are going to, in, in a similar vein to when Jim Fishwick, video game curator, came on, we're going to delve back into the history of gaming and to, sort of talk about some games that, you know, you probably know and love, but, uh, you know, follow a particular thread through gaming history. Mm. So this week, we're going to delve into the amazing story, really, of game developer Ollie Zanetti. Oh, yes, yes. And we'll go back and we'll talk about his, his earliest games. Uh, all when he was a childhood to, prodigy and... A childhood prodigy logged into Prodigy, mm. the online service. In fact, that's how I think, you know, he kind of got into the whole, you know, learned a lot of his early skills. But he was also a prodigy. and But all the way up to his modern modern games where we know as sort of the, you know, the, the director of some of the, some amazing AAA games uh, from the current day. So, yeah, I think we'll, we'll basically tell his story through his games. Yeah. And so, to begin with, Trev, I think you maybe wanted to, to start off. Yes. Yes. So, we'll start off with the uh, well, his earliest game, which was Miniature Graveyard Party, which was a ROM hack for the Super Nintendo. Yeah. So, I mean, this is part of why, you know, he's sort of, he was such a prodigy because it, it wasn't easy to get started in in game development back in the days of the Super NES and that sort of thing. Definitely not. You know, particularly if you wanted to make games for those consoles. Uh, but yes, he managed to to sort of get his game onto, like you said, a, you know, a ROM hack. Yeah, and <laughs> it was you know, 1993. All that you got around in how you learn this stuff is not via the internet. It's through BBS boards no. and all this sort of stuff. And you know, if you wanted to actually play any of these games back in the day, you used to have to log into one of these BBS boards, download something that would then give you instructions on how to, you know, wire some some things up to, like, your cartridge and then send down the ROM hack to, to like... Exactly. So that the, so that the, the console would actually read it correctly hmm. and actually load it up. Yeah, for sure. But anyway, let, let's... Then enough about the technology. We all know the technology works because otherwise, you know, Ollie Zanetti, it would have just been one game and... Well, that's one it. Game and, and it's... Yeah, we bring it up because it's impressive that at the age of 12, he was doing that. Yeah. But, uh, it, you know, it's more... This basically became a bit of a cult hit around the the bulletin boards hmm. at the time. And, and then obviously in recent years, like emulators have been able to yeah. pick it up and play. So, yeah. What what I find so funny is, or what, what I find so, like, insane is this is like a precursor to, like, the Mario Party games. Yeah. And and the fact that, you know, it was all in miniatures and to, and to, and to actually show, like, the miniatures in, uh, you know, the, the very low resolution that the SNES had, yet you could still tell that they were... Miniature characters in a graveyard, and they were on like a board game sort of thing, and it was just yeah. There were some really impressive sprite techniques that he used in sort of some of the backgrounds and some of the sprites themselves to kind of get that across that these were miniatures. Like it all, it was almost supposed to be like you know playing a little D and D game or a board game, playing a, a legitimate board game. <laughs> yeah, which I really I don't think it'd be done. Mm. At the time, like, it, 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 sort of the way that it got that across with with some really ingenious kind of techniques and the way you, that it almost gave you that sense of a depth of field, even though obviously with the sprite, you know, just some really clever sort of lighting techniques and things uh, to, like, tinting the sprites in different ways. Yeah, and, and to really give that, well, 
I know that he used a little bit of Mode 7 in there, and if and for those people who don't know, Mode 7 was like a, a pseudo-3D mode that the, the Super NES had access to, and he managed to, uh, you know, use both sprites and and the and the Mode 7 mode at the same time to get that, that real depth of field happening on the screen while also looking like a like a board game but the really cool thing is that uh his his whole game had all this backstory and a real history to the graveyard Mm. well and and what was interesting i think you know 12 year olds have a lot of time on their hands (laughs) really you know they're sort of they're they're independent enough uh, too young to start masturbating Yes, exactly. You got there before me. Uh, (laughs) Independent enough to have the time, too young to start jerking off. Uh, So he had he had just chapters and chapters of of backstory around this graveyard and and its history. uh, Not all of which made it into the game. Uh, You know, a lot of it was distributed as text files alongside the ROMs. And, and so it's really only the, you know, the key fans who got a lot of that backstory. But you could just, you could see playing it if you had read that, you know, how it made its way into the games. Yeah, and look, there were some like thoughts within within the community that if you were able to get off the board, like supposedly there was this one rumor going around that if you rolled um kind of like monopoly rules where you know you roll doubles doubles you know x number of times in a row uh because you because you do get an extra turn on, on each double unlike in in monopoly where after three times you go to jail supposedly after 30 times of doubles in a row you actually hop off the board right and then you can then you can like go to other other gravestones and find out some lore about some of the um some of the other gravestones. But of course, that's just a rumor. And I remember reading something about it in um, like the old Green Guide, you know, that came came right, with the age yeah. on on Thursdays. Yep. Yeah. I used to look forward to that thing coming every week. Yeah, there was a, there was, was a section in there. I was game obsessed, and that that had it was the only way at that time how to find out about a the new games coming out, b how to get hints for the bloody games that you know you were stuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that and the, you know this was I was starting to click Hyper Magazine and mm. that, that some of the Australian game mags that were out, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was there was a remarkable amount of gameplay in there again for a you know something that was distributed in this way and 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 just you know built by a twelve year old for mm. one, and the fact that it was multiplayer with the you know uh, and even like more than two players with hot swapping and stuff, uh, hot swapping. What am I talking about? Hot seats. Hot seats. Hot, yeah. hot seat play. Uh, like it was, it was, it was a full release, basically a full release. Yeah. Oh, did, did, we haven't even talked about the music. Like he, he like put, put a whole heap of music together and like sound effects and like, yeah, it was just, it was pretty impressive that he was able to do all this stuff at 12 years old with like no internet. Yeah. So the mini games, what, what were your, some of your favorite mini games? Cause we did, we did play this. Yeah, yeah, we we obviously we gave it a go uh, in preparation for the episode. Look, I liked the the like wacker zombie mode mm-hmm. uh, mini game. That was that was fun for how for how simple it was. Yeah. Uh, the fact that you had to kind of like that you each had your own mallet, but you had like you couldn't just. Like there was collisions, even like you you couldn't push past each other. You had to, so you kind of had to strategize, kind of go around and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. You could you could sort of block people from. Oh, they're going for that zombie. You can get in their way, and if you get there first or whatever, they yeah can't can't get over there. I I know that at one stage you were blocking me in the corner, so I couldn't get out anywhere, and like because you you were like two zombies ahead. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just like just just wait it out. (laughs) <laughs> um i really really liked the um 
kind of like it was the community chest or or whatever of yeah yeah of this thing where you could choose which grave uh, your reward was in, yep. and then you had like the 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 sort of decathlon esque thing of you know having to tapping um, the buttons tapping it tapping the buttons to like dig to the dig- grave faster yeah. and the faster that you dug the grave the the um the yeah. better the reward it was. Well, I liked how you could kind of fuck over your friends in that one too, because if you got it right, then like it randomly chose your like the bad the bad choices uh, could go to your friends. Uh, and then they had to do like a button mash thing to try to fight it off and get less of a uh, less of a thing. Like you screwed me over on that a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I had that that whole technique where you, you know you get your you get your shirt and you just rub your finger over the button really, oh, really yeah. fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's Rex just- destroyed many a. Uh- many many a, many a shirt and many a controller <laughs> many a shirt and many a controller exactly <laughs> yeah and look you could tell that you know nintendo they weren't very happy because they literally stole the whole star idea from him of course they weren't stars in this they were skulls but yeah they obviously took it yeah, they they couldn't use skulls <laughs> for mario party no but uh you you had you had the skulls, you had, you know, coins that you'd be picking up or cash anyway that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's sort of a, a grave robbing implication there uh, because as you did go around this graveyard, you'd, yeah, you'd get these coins and things. It's like, where are you getting the coins from? But <laughs> Grave robbing, yeah. <laughs> I mean, as we, as we know, like, Ollie was going through a bit of a goth, you know, Phase, and we'll talk about the next mm-hmm. game in September. Uh, so you know, I'm not, I'm not surprised that Nintendo had to lighten it up a bit when they, I mean, essentially wholesale ripped him off for Mario Party. Yeah, yeah, and look, going back to the audio, one of the things that I did like that he did, he kind of took, he took what was happening in in a lot of the games at, at around that time, like Doom was about to come out, and you know they'd they'd done. Like, the initial music actually is almost a, a MIDI copy of Master of Puppets. And so, what he did is he he almost created his own thing from, as you said, you know, goth, grunge, all this sort of stuff that he was into at the time. Yeah. There was, like, definitely it smells like Teen Spirit in there, like, as the- I think that, yeah, there was some inspiration, for sure. Yeah. Inspiration. Yeah, you, you can tell. Inspiration. And, and it- you, you could sing along to it, for the most part. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, okay. <laughs> Interpolation, then, as they call Interpolation. it. Interpolation. Know? That's, that's yes. a little bit better. Uh, yeah. And look, it, again, just impressive at how well he pulled that off on the audio limitations of the uh, the Super NES at the time. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there was some, some banging music in there. Mm. It worked really well. And that reminds me of the next game. Well, yeah. Let's move forward uh, to the next game. Which, uh, you know, he, I think this was one after, the, after that release, uh, he put this one out in a, in a similar way, but he started, he sort of was stealing the shareware model, mm. uh, that, you know, Apogee and, and whatever and, and in software were, were making good use of for a while. I think he realized, oh, like I can distribute this game, but then maybe make some money to send, you know, the, the full version to people later on and so you know this this was another rom hack that he put out i think he this one seemed a bit uh a bit of like it rushed it out i think maybe he kind of had that idea of the shareware thing this was a cult rugby creator yep so again he's got the sort of the goth dark death theme going on it did also start in a graveyard and i think he you know reused some of this you know obviously reused some of the graphics and that sort of thing well there 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 was there was a board game sort of well it looked like it was it was supposed to be a board game that was sort of sitting there that in the book in the graveyard that as you left it yeah yeah it was almost a a meta yeah sort of a meta reference back to his previous game but this was a very different game and and it was essentially a Almost an early um, football manager style thing, hmm. which was funny. I, I mean, I guess again, he, it was just what he was into at the time as a, you know, by this stage, uh, a 13, 14 year old. 
It, it kind of it kind of feels like nowadays you you'd sort of almost say that it's kind of f- football manager mixed with blood bowl. Well, that's it exactly. So I was gonna yeah yes it it, it obviously you were managing the team, but you you fully played out the game like it had a a full you know rugby rugby game in there in this way. But it also had lots of occult sort of stuff like witches and necromancers and. Yeah, so you could build up your team, decide on what sort of type of of unit, I suppose, what type of player, uh, what type of creature each player was. Yeah. Uh, and then they'd have their, their different techniques and their different skills that they could use, their, you know, different speeds. Zombies are obviously quite slow, but, you know, you can't stop them. Yeah. And, and look- the the fact that it was rugby, you could kind of tell that even though he's Australian, you know, he's obviously from either New South Wales or Queensland. We didn't know this at this stage, but, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, obviously, you know, nothing against him. I'm not a big rugby fan, but... No, no, me neither. It I, was I, a fun game, though. Like, I still I, thought that he did a good job. You know, you could use sort of those, those Frankenstein's monsters as, you know, your big sort of defenders, and then, you've, then you yeah, had... Yeah, that was... That was always a good technique because they took up more space and, and it made they- a lot harder to get past them on the, you know, the sort of top-down view uh, yeah, as yeah. well. It would have been good if this did have multiplayer, but unfortunately it did just have the single-player campaign. Yeah, look, I, so- think, I think he was, you know, obviously he'd had multiplayer in, in the Graveyard Party, but it was, it was hot seat. It was, hot seat, it was like turn-based. It, yeah. Uh, you could... You could technically play that first one on just a single controller and pass it around. I think he hadn't quite figured out getting the actual multiple inputs and stuff in there. You know, as clever a game designer and developer as he obviously was for his age, you know, plus, plus, I think, you know, as I said, the shareware thing. So there was a lot of game in the the main version, but you could essentially mail him at his house like he had it <laughs> like he had his address in the game which was kind of an odd you know uh, his parents probably weren't too happy about it ah see that that was only in the very first version like he did eventually update it like yeah but that first version was still getting spread around yeah it did <laughs> and, and so he released essentially almost like Again, ahead of his time, DLC for this thing. Like, it wasn't that the the, the uh, additional episodes were really added much more gameplay, but you could get different teams. You could get mm. different units yes. that were added into the additional um, things. And he'd just send you a, a floppy disk, you know, if you pay whatever it was, like five bucks, uh, and you could expand on, you could expand on your game. Um, the only problem was that because this was, you know, a little bit, a little bit later in the time, the internet is just sort of coming around and BBSs aren't so popular yeah. anymore that there were a lot of like full version, um, oh, codes available. Yeah. That- you could, you could find, you could find the file, you know, fairly easily. It started getting shared around as well. But, you know, I think he, he, I mean, and I, this is what he said in his biography, but, uh, you know, it, this is essentially what then funded him or like convinced his parents as well to let him, you know, take time off school and work on his next game, which was obviously, you know, his first one that was, act, you know, he found a publisher for him was actually released, not just in this sort of bootleg ROM hack way mm. but again just like yeah the way he managed to take advantage of of the shareware trend at the time and, and really capitalize on that for something like a again another you know these two super nice rom hacks which you know had a fairly limited audience it was yeah. impressive that he it got as far as it did yeah so we jump forward uh, like a n- number of years yeah yeah End of the PlayStation 1's life cycle. He's moved on from from Nintendo. Everyone thought that his next game, because it didn't come out, you know, the N64's, you know, just having come out and all this sort of stuff. But no, he he ended up going over to the Sony PlayStation. Yeah, that's right. Again, sticking with 2D. 
I remember at the time, I remember at the time there was a bit of talk because he, he went silent for a mm. long while, uh, for quite a, quite a number of years. I mean, by, by the time that this came out, you know, we're talking 98, 99, um, by the yeah, time it actually it. came so out. So, like, like, four or five years, and that's a long time, you know, that we've now gone from, you know, essentially, like, the dawn of the internet to, I mean, it's still early internet days, but, like, it's, it, it, you know, the internet picked up fast in the late 90s there. Um, so many more people. His games got a lot more, you know, that was, they were still being shared around, but everyone's like, I guess just like this flash in the pan, like it almost, almost became a, you know, a, a, a internet history, you know, story that was being shared around of like this pro- this prodigious kid from the BBS days or whatever. And then he, you know, shows up with his next game. Yeah. So, Attack of the Banjo. Yeah. Is, I've got to say, like, he, you can tell that he took, he took a lot of these inspirations from, you know, your Castlevania, that, that's, you know, Symphony of the Night had come out. Yep. Yeah. Um, and he's just like, you know what? I could make a cool side-scrolling sort of thing that, that worked very similar to that. And it blew it out of the water. Like, it was well, massive. This, what, what was... Yeah. So... What I find so interesting about this game is because, like, the Super NES and the Mega Drive were kind of the king of that genre. And, mm. like, already, like, they'd, there was a ton of games, side scrolling sort of things that came out. But what, so, but what's impressive is he's obviously, you know, grown up, he was playing these games through his teenagerhood, and he was just like, I can do this, but better. Mm. And it was, I think it was that it took until the PlayStation to realize to this have vision the power he, to be able to realize that vision, and yeah. also the size because it took up three CDs. Yeah, yeah, and for a two D side scrolling game, that's a lot of that's a lot, a lot of area. You know, that's now, a lot of content. Half half the stuff on each of these CDs was just the music because he used CD audio and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and he wrote hours of music for this stuff he compressed it right down so it was you know there was some in cd audio format there was some in in the actual in like midi file format itself so that you know he didn't have to he didn't have to go crazy basically when he wanted his full band you know of which he obviously played the banjo when he wanted that to be forefront then Obviously, the MIDI version of a of a banjo doesn't sound like a banjo, so he just yes. used the CD. He audio used for the, that. the full recorded audio. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and this is the thing: the music was so key to the gameplay, mm. uh, which you know uh, was just something we hadn't seen, particularly in this genre mm. uh, before this. And again, I love I love the fact that. You know, he took where the game, where, you know, the occult uh, rugby thing yep. um, finished in that stadium. And that's where you start this game. Like, you start in the stadium. Yeah, he, he, even, like, the game even, is just finished. And your character's walking out with their banjo. It's like this they, early, you could, you could sense his, like, you could see his, his sort of... Uh, his desire for continuity mm. like that that this was not these were not just individual games that he was creating he was you know it was this it was this path it was this line between them um even though those each game so different from the one before mm. yeah i mean this one had of of all things banjo dueling like yeah, the, the bosses that you went up against, you know, it felt like, oh god, is this just Deliverance? Um, but no, he <laughs> it had such. Well, but then the combination of of the platforming, you know, uh, some some fairly classic platforming kind yeah. of you know, boss fights uh, with really you know having to do a lot of bullet bullet hell kind of dodging and and. Uh, you know, hitting the weak points and that sort of thing, but then utilizing that banjo uh, for you know the, the special techniques with the shielding and stuff that you had 
really added another and, layer. And to also it. the fact that you could literally just attack with a banjo because the banjo in this yeah. was super strong. Like it never went out of tune. Well, yeah. except for the one tuning mini game, of course. You know, but we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah the story mm-hmm. based. Yeah. Story reasons for that. Story reasons for that. And that that was a pivotal moment in the entire game. You know, we we can't discount that. Um, but I'm glad that they, it wasn't a continual thing that you had to worry about the banjo going out of tune. Well, and then that was the other thing that, that really took up a decent amount of space on the CDs was, you know, as we saw with all of the lore he wrote for Miniature Graveyard Party around the history of the graveyard and different things and... Uh, which was somewhat missing from uh, from the rugby game, I think because he was, you know, that was a bit more of a rushed project and he was trying to really take advantage of the shareware thing. In this one, the, that lore is back. Like, there is backstory to this game. Every area, every character, you can have these big conversations with the characters and, like, learn a lot about them. Uh, you know, you you can see that he, he was such a writer at heart as well um, for these games. What I really loved was, like, if when you were, when you first leave the rugby place and you go into the city, like, yeah. you know, it's fairly linear. And then as soon as you get into the city, anytime you come across a crossroad, you hit the up button and he yeah. flips into, it's now you're on that street and you can go up to the next street and flip in. And depending on which yeah. way you actually, which side of the road depends on which side of the, of the screen you actually get and which who you're fighting Yeah, I mean, up it was essentially and- an open world. It was essentially an open world, from, yeah. you know, back, back on the PlayStation in a, in a 2D side-scroller. Um, yeah, I mean, you could you could pick up that map and it told you all the, all the streets and you'd give you a sense of where you were, but you could just wander and, like, oh, I'll go down this street and you'd see the street names. You could start to get a sense of, like, how everything's laid out. I noticed for the first, like, probably four and a half hours of me playing, I was just searching the city. No no combat at this stage. Yeah. Like, I hadn't even got my banjo yet. And I'm like... Yeah. I, I actually went to, like, there was a there was a cash converters in in one of the streets, and I saw a banjo in the, in the shop, and I was trying for, like, literally an hour to, to right, raise yeah. enough money to get that but not realizing yeah, no, you that have that's... to do the quest to yeah but you know that's part of the whole busking quest and it would have been good yeah. for him to let that let that be known but then again there was no way to get that sort of it's money definitely so interestingly like you know sort of uh to to compare it to a very modern game it had that Elden Ring feel of mm. you weren't handheld through this. You had all these places you could go. You could just find these side stories. You could talk to these people. And there were all these interconnecting relationships between yeah. the people that you'd run into on this street. This is all in the world before you've even got your banjo and can start, yeah, can start like actually going on the combat quest, you know, through the, through the more linear sort of dungeons as they were. Yeah. Uh, not, not, literal, mean, literal not literal dungeons. dungeons. Some were literal dungeons, <laughs> some, but some were, were just, you know, they, there was a lot of, again, a lot of- Some were sewers, even. Areas, like- sewers, forests, <laughs> like, there was a ton of stuff. But yeah, just the, the amount of work. Uh, and, you know, again, it comes out in his biography, like, the reason, it's not just that he'd, he'd been writing this game for years- and it wasn't until the PlayStation came out that he was like, oh, now I have the ability to actually put this into practice. Like, the actual development of the game was relatively short. Yeah. He just spent so long, you know, building up these backstory and these characters. And, uh, you know, you see scans of, like, his notebooks and stuff. Like, it's it's so interesting to see the way that he's mapped out these relationships between the characters. I, and I literally don't know how anyone read any of the stuff that he wrote, though, because that was all chicken scratch. Like, it was worse than oh, the yeah. doctor. Like- no, 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 no. <laughs> you, couldn't read, you, you couldn't read the actual, yeah, the actual pages, really, but you get a sense of, you know, and, and obviously the biography goes over some of the- Yeah. Over the things. So, well, you did mention Elden Ring before, and it's something I did want to bring up. The fact that when you picked up something- you did have that whole like you go in, you go into your inventory, and you can read a little bit of lore about this item that you've just picked up, yeah, uh, which is very Elden Ring. In fact, I reckon they stole it from it. Like, 
because he he was the only one doing this. Like again, it, then again, I'm not sure. Kingsfield may have already come out. Like the, there's there's inspiration, and there's it's it's just obviously very clear that Ollie Zanetti was ahead of his time, ahead of his time, and he was just defining. You know, he was he was he was finding new things that games hadn't really been doing at the time. And that just, I mean, that naturally leads to that sort of mechanic or that sort of idea becoming just a part of games then, like mm. future you know, games. So, while while you can, I think, you know, trace certain things back to his games, whether he did it first or just did it f- well, first, you know, yeah. early on, it, I think it's you know I don't think you call it stealing I think it's just again it's just he was he was the one who really brought it into into the gaming world and then yep. other other uh, developers and things started you know picking up on on those and, sorts and this of is ideas. really where he did do a lot of his own music he composed a lot of it he he had his very it was very Ollie style like the the style was just shouted his his name it still had that sort of that those yeah. weird textures on it and yeah he it's well yes he he had that distinctive visual style and obviously the you know higher resolution of the PlayStation and such gave him the ability to really play with that more mm. especially because it looks so high resolution like i personally i'm not sure that he's ever beaten this like made a game better than this in my opinion like you know, even though obviously with with higher budgets and more resources later on, I don't know that he's ever quite reached the heights of just well. And I say the height more the depths. Yeah, the depths. Uh, <laughs> the depths of the, of this game. Uh, should we? Should since we? Since then, should we talk about the ending and how heartbreaking that was? Yeah, uh, yeah. I think we can afford to spoil a twenty five year old game. <laughs> I mean, I mean, if you have if you haven't played it by now. Like, Attack of the Banjo is 98, three CDs, like, on PlayStation. I'm sure you can find, like... I, I saw one at Cash Converters the other day, you know, which I found quite funny because yeah, there was a Cash Yeah, really a crime that they haven't, like, yeah. remastered. But... Remastered it yet. He, he... You know, Ollie, we we talked to him, you know. Yeah. We talked we talked to him a little while ago. Uh, we were trying to get him on the podcast, and he basically he's turned into a bit of a recluse, so he doesn't really want to be. Well, that's it. And I involved. Think, you know, he's he very cleverly, or or just you know, shrewdly held onto the rights of all his games. I mean, obviously, particularly these early ones. But and, and yes, he yeah. he has been resisting remasters and things because hmm. he he feels like it's not it, it's done. It's it's already yeah. done. Like he, he's done with that. He wants to move on to the next game. He doesn't need to look back. Yeah, I just I think it's a shame because I think for like younger people, people uh, you know who weren't around at the time to be able to play it, even if it's not like a full remaster, just the ability to play it on modern. You know, I mean, obviously you can get it, you can emulate it, or you yeah. know, on PC and stuff. But and and as I'd as like to see a release. In, in Jim Fisher's thing. The best way to experience it is through. Emu VR, so you're in in like your childhood, in childhood VR, yes, um, kids' room, and you you're watching a, like a big screen. That is always very nostalgic. To, it's yeah, really cool. Um, yeah. But anyway, so this is after you've you've um, you've travelled down into the depths of of like the sewers. You've crossed the mountains. You've gone through, you know, the the, the very quick Dracula's Castle part, which was you know just a, a harken back to the monsters that you that you sort of found in the other games. And you know, at this stage, he's cleaned. He's cleaned it all up, and he's coming up against. He's going up against his his arch nemesis, which happens to be his music teacher. Yeah, and they have they have the big, you know, the big ban- banjo jewel. You know, kind of feels very deliverance. Uh, he wrote it. He he wrote it all very similar to. Well, another game that came out around this time, which was uh, the Banjo Jewel in um, Monkey Island Three, Curse of Monkey Island. Mm. But in this case, instead of you know doing the whole diddle 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 and choosing the individual strings, you had to play a lot of the solo. Like you were you were sort of using the um the shoulder buttons and that sort of stuff to to play the different to play the different notes and go through. 
But anyway, you've, I just remember you get to the end and if you don't do the quick time event, absolutely perfect. The, a crack forms in his banjo. Yep. And it- the, which, the, is, which is- The headstock literally falls off. Very significant given how much, like, this banjo has held up throughout the game. And yeah, I mean- The relationship that has been built, essentially, between, you know, your main character and the banjo and what it means to him. And, I mean, I think it was, it's fairly obvious. It's fairly obvious that this was a pretty personal story for mm. Ollie as well. Very much um, so. And, you know, he's, he's kind of- we haven't talked about it because it's not really the podcast for it, but like his music career and, and music history, uh, his history with music, obviously like running alongside his game development and playing a big part uh, in the you know inspiration back and forth there. Yeah. Um. So, you when I first played this, I thought this is the end. Like, yeah, I obviously got the bad ending. But it turned out to be the most uplifting ending when he just drops the banjo and he looks at his looks at his um, at his music teacher dead in the eye and says, "I don't need a banjo for this." Yeah, puts his fingers into the approximate position and just goes Wayne's World it's, on him and just yep. starts you know air banjo air, air banjo and like the hair starts like raising up on the music teacher's head as it's as you know he starts being pushed back through like all this power it was yeah it's such a powerful thing you start seeing kind of the ghostly form of the banjo in his arms like fading in and out mm-hmm. yeah it's really just well done well done dramatic timing and yeah it's a great ending i mean like but i said the I don't, thing is I don't think you can also finish the game it. just with the actual banjo like you know, and you and you miss all this. Yeah. Like, so I think the real canonical uh, canonical ending, and we'll we'll go over this again because the next game actually it, it plays into it. It plays into it because obviously the next game starts in the in this exact yeah in this exact ice temple. You know, where you know obviously the the final banjo duel happens in this game. Yeah. But oh, just thinking about those people who finished the game with the actual banjo and didn't make that those couple of couple of mistakes to actually see you know him p- pick up the um well just air banjo <laughs> yeah well it's is- funny you thought you got the bad ending but you essentially got the best ending yeah uh, yeah it definitely loses a bit if you if you don't you know take that path you know since since we're since we're there um let's move on to the next game which mm-hmm. And, and, you know, anyone who's followed his career will know that following on from what was essentially his magnum opus into this was his, like, the, probably his low point, you know? Yeah. Well, first foray into 3D, so it was always going to be- Yeah. Yeah. So, where, of course, we're talking about Lifeless Frontier. Yes. I mean, I, I, I don't like to say it, but he, it's kind of in the name. It is kind of lifeless, yes. but- Well, I think, like you said, I think he struggled with the 3D. And, and like, you know, this was this was late PlayStation now. I think it was, what, 2002, 2003? Oh, no, this, this, this came out on PlayStation 2. Was there a PlayStation 2? I thought that he- I think he'd done most of the development, though, for PlayStation 1. For PlayStation 1, and then he ported it. And then yep. he ported it. Because obviously there's you know there's a fair amount of crossover still between the PS1 yeah. and the PS2 when they're available. So yeah, I mean I think that's part of why it got such a bad reception is that for a game that came out a couple of years into the PlayStation 2's life, it still very much looked like a PlayStation One game. Yep, to the point that it didn't even use the analog tri- uh, the analog sticks. So it- yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was very it it felt very early. Um, very early 3D, and you couldn't quite yeah. control the camera. And I mean, or look, from like the that. very beginning, you know, like you said, that this game starts off in that ice temple, but it, you could tell he was kind of at this point withholden to that idea of starting the next game from the previous game because the fact that you walk out of the ice temple into like a western. Yes. In the, even the saloon doors in the ice temple, which were completely out of place, and 
now you're kind essentially of out of place, in a desert. But the, but the broken banjo on the ground, and as I said, you know, yeah. Uh, look, there was there was some thematic there was some thematic elements through there, but uh, again, like because it was three D, because it was early three D, and his first foray into three D, those visual, really visual elements that he was had had essentially perfected at that point yeah. uh, for Attack of the Banjo just weren't there. You know, he... I didn't realise it till I played it this week, though, that um, those... They were cobwebs in in the Ice Temple. So it wasn't the same character that you were playing. This is probably many years later, and you just happened to go to the Ice Temple and you see, like, the the broken banjo on the ground and, like... Yeah, no, I appreciated that. I I, I, I didn't realise, but I I thought it was the same character. Oh, right. So I was surprised that he wasn't... He was no longer playing the banjo and it was was now. I think a lot of people did think that, but, you know, the fact that he kind of, yeah, walks through the saloon doors, puts on the cowboy hat, and now you're essentially in the desert, like, he gets on his horse... Uh, it, it just it's it comes across as a bit weird, especially if like a lot of people you haven't played the previous games mm. because you know being a very different genre, there are a lot of new players that came. This was their first Ollie's and Eddie game. It's a very weird beginning. <laughs> <laughs> but look, the for it was not. I would say it is not a good game. Like you said, very lifeless. There's a lot of just. Riding around the desert uh, on your horse. I will say the horse mechanics for the time, like for, I mean, this is pre-Shadow of the Colossus even, like, which, which you know, obviously defines some really good horse riding stuff, but it, it worked pretty well. I mean, Ico would probably just only just come out at this stage. But Ico looks so much more well, like- well, that Yeah, well, that's it. Like, he didn't have- the thing is, I think this is where it really started to become clear that him doing almost everything, everything himself, himself. Yep. is just not going to work for many more, particularly in 3D. Like, his sort of style of animation was very much that that SNES style, minimal frames. And he was very good at that. He was very good at creating expressive animations in minimal frames like that. But once you get to 3D, that just looks stilted and... and Lifeless, you know, which, you know, I mean, come to think of it, I, I wonder if that was, was not the original name of the game and he almost brought that in there to make it, you know, as, as, a, as, a, as an excuse or a reason. But, yeah, you know, you, you, you'd ride around, you'd find these ghost towns. And again, like, there was some great story stuff. He was trying to fit the lore in there. Yep. But it just, it wasn't quite the same. It didn't have that same depth. And I think- There was a saloon that you could actually find, like, a a miniature graveyard party board game. Like- Yeah, he did manage to sneak that Easter, Easter yeah. egg in there. Which is, again, like, he's moved on so far from where he started in, in the fact that, you know, he, even- even in, um, you know, Attack of the Banjo, you still had, like, those occult sort of things sort of over- overhanging. You know, yeah. there was the whole necromancer battle- boss battle and the Castle Dracula yep, yep. Um, stuff. This didn't have much of that at all. No, you can tell he's moved on. He's definitely in a different phase of his life by the time I get to this For one. For now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we will get to that. <laughs> Yeah, and, and actually we might have to... We might end up splitting this into... Two two episodes, I think, because uh, yeah, we're not yeah. we're, we're we're not even part. We're only just on the PlayStation Two, uh, and and we've been going for a bit. But we'll we'll get through a couple more. Yeah, and 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 even then, like he's got one more game on the PlayStation Two, and we'll talk about that today. Yeah, and we, yeah. we just well, yeah, exactly. But yes, uh, Lifeless Frontier. You know, you know this this still. I think one of the things about this game is. There is still a ton, like he did a ton of writing for this. Uh, mm. Again, threads that 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 link back to the previous games. So, like if you have played them all, it's it it brings more depth and like recontextualizes certain characters that you had seen. You know, even though this is obviously set so much later, you know, there's there's relations and and, and things that are in there. 
uh, and, uh, pre, um, successes, successes, we, we call the children of, yeah, anyway. Yeah. But because the towns are so far apart and like the getting between them is sort of such a tedious, boring task, you don't get that feeling of everything being linked in the same way. Uh, because by the time you find the other person, you know, in that story thread, you've, you've put the game down 17 times because it takes, so, you know, because you, you, you've, the world is huge, but it's empty. It's so empty. Definitely so. Uh, I mean, now, now I'm thinking about it. They did that Silent Hill thing of, you know, obviously you couldn't see too far ahead of you because usually yeah. the second that you got out into the desert, oh look, a sandstorm has come up, and it's like it's it's very hard to see, and um, yeah, so you could only but- see you know a couple of meters in front of you, and you just had to rely on your compass to take you in the right. Well, that's it. In the but, right direction. But but the magnetic storms that they kept on happening, that kept on yeah, having they obviously compass tried going to, round in a circle. It, it really like, felt like padding. Uh, you know, obviously that worked for Silent Hill being in, in a slow-moving character in a small town. When you're traveling, you know, miles and miles across desert and, you know, only having paths that you could then barely see because of the you know you're trying to you're having to if you if you lose that path there's no easy way to find it again except for just wandering aimlessly with this you know low uh visual range and then also the fact that they didn't have any and i mean this wasn't that common at the time necessarily but there was no like uh quest markers or you know, town markers no or map. anything. <laughs> There's like, no map. You just you had to rely on just directions from within the conversations you have with people of like, oh, you know, uh, Merrittsville is is northeast from here, about three miles or whatever, and you can follow the path to get there. But yeah, if you go off that path in this mm. sandstorms, then you're screwed. Yeah, but from from what in in Ollie's biography, he did actually say this harkens back to the old Sierra days where. As he was growing up and, you know, he loved sitting down with his dad and drawing a map. Yeah. So, that's why he, he wanted you to, to have to actually kind of draw the map yourself. Yes. Yeah. But, yeah, as I think, as, as you said before, you know, he, he changed he changed the name to Lifeless because in between towns, it was literally just Lifeless. There were, there were no... Wasn't no even tumbleweeds. Was, no, you could no have tumbleweeds. Really thrown some tumbleweeds just, in there. Just sandstorms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which obviously was also, uh, and, like, and I think a lot of this just it obviously comes from his inexperience in three D. Mm. Like, the sandstorms were obviously added as a late stage thing to deal with low frame rate issues for how big the space was that he was trying to show. You know, that he was trying to trying to show. Like an optimization method. So yeah, so I've got to say, I I never finished this game. So nah. I've I've seen I've like watched some videos of some of the yeah like the end bits. Um, from what I hear, it it takes a really weird like twist at the end, and it wasn't necessarily all western because I mean uh, it yeah. sort of explains what happens with the next game. Well, uh, that's that we'll it. And so quickly this hit is, today, and we'll obviously we'll we'll quickly hit this game, but. The fact that, uh, again, it's he's kind of a victim of his own success here and his own trends. He wanted to ensure that he could finish this game in the same spot as he starts the next one, but he kind of... He I think he kind it. of shoehorned it into this game rather he than it shoehorning into- it the, the other yes, way. exactly. Exactly. So, last ever game released for the PlayStation 2. Yes, he does have that... that uh, yep. Uses analog sticks this time. Red Hot Plunger. I love this game. I think I think it's got such a cool idea. I mean, in in the um, I don't know why, but in Germany, obviously they didn't like something about Red Hot and Plunger, so they called it the Dark Project. But it like it didn't quite work. It's it's kind of like when you think about you know fahrenheit and indigo prophecy you know red hot plunger the dark project you know they they go hand in hand in in they were trying different things yeah yeah but 
I loved it. I, I thought the idea of having, you know, a plumber as, as like, the main character, yet he was actually a plumber and not just in yeah, game Yeah, this is not a, this like, not like a, Mario, a Mario situation. Mario, Mario. But he, he was literally a plumber. <laughs> and you spend the first half hour of the game, a la your, well, your Fahrenheit and, and that sort of stuff, playing playing literally as a as a as a um as a yeah. plumber going around fixing well this fixing is it. people's so problems it, it and- obviously yeah this is it it obviously was very strange that the the that that lifeless frontier then ended in a like outhouse that but was a rather it. modern outhouse like well a- that's it like with with this modern you know it, it's sort of this almost a weird surreal twin peaks situation where after all this time of you know and i guess it's not that far off when since you left a fucking ice castle to get to this place but that you end up in a modern bathroom and then you know the game sort of just ends but obviously becomes clear then or became clear when red hot plunger came out and that's where it begins yeah yeah i i felt like this game brought together well and he obviously he'd, he'd realized by this point oh if i'm gonna actually do a proper game in 3d i need a team mm. and you know luckily enough he was able to find a publisher that based on his pre-lifeless frontier games uh would would give him the funding that he needed to make this happen so that he could focus on the writing the characters and the overall story and let other people make it look good and 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 this is this is where we, where we get my f- my my favorite person within you know Ollie Ollie Zanetti's sort of like sphere of sphere of influence yeah. um the artist simply known as Audrey yeah now Audrey no like no last name given it's just Straight, know it's Audrey. Straight Audrey. Yep. They are around for what the next four games after this. Uh, at least playing, yeah, playing a big part in. I think the next three, and then definitely had a lot of influence and and, and yeah. helped with with one after that. But but they they just influenced the um the graphics so so much that every, well, this is yeah everything and, from and here on out is. Is this is a controversial. It's-, it's a somewhat controversial thing because I and I'm on the side that, well, obviously Ollie's and his early games were amazing, and like I said, I, I think oh, you know, Attack of the Banjo is the best. Even like- his, the Attack of the Banjo <laughs> is, the, is the best game that he's built, but I, it, it's not until he started teaming up with Audrey that he really, like, I feel like that the team up with Audrey is really the actual sort of defining moment because then they, they, the, the, the games that they made together are just so influential and so different. Mm. I don't know. Do you, you know what I mean? Like a, a lot of people still, like a lot of people downplay Audrey's influence on the games, but Audrey coming in and, and giving their visual style to it, giving their technical expertise, giving their, uh, yeah, their, 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 ability to to build things in 3d mm. and make them look good like i don't think you can i don't think you can raise that up enough actually like i think if audrey hadn't come along ollie zanetti would not have made another good game no he was flailing in the modern yeah you know, modern so age. so let's let's talk about what red hot plunger is about so yes the first half hour is is all about the um the plumbing jobs and that sort of stuff but it it's after that that like prologue that um you know the the title card sort of comes up as red hot plunger and you find out that our character who who remains unnamed in this in yeah. this game like a lot of a lot of his protagonists in in the other games didn't didn't really get named because i i think then you could actually put yourself into there and because they were yeah that's another controversial thing actually like whether it uh, you know and and this is just these are just discussions that happen around his games but whether it's the sort of 
typical, like, the player is a cipher being, like, the, you know, the ability for the player to put themselves in there. Or, and I kind of tend towards this, that it's more that the player, in the, at least in the previous games, maybe not with this one, but that it was Ollie himself putting himself into yeah. that player and not wanting to name it, but yeah. that for all of those games, it was him. They were very... All these characters are very androgynous, though. So... Yeah. They definitely don't have... Um, and that, that remains throughout this whole thing, which is what I really like about these these games. The fact that they could be anything... Uh, they could be anyone. Yeah. And I think that's what... You know, part of what made them very uh, popular, but... I, d- I did notice in the debug mode, because um, I... Ollie did give us the uh, the... The codes when we had our conversation a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah, he actually named the character Ego, and that was right. um, that was actually a a thing from Sierra uh, that they named every single one of their characters internally as Ego, so that they they basically knew which was play a character and yep. and could reference the NPCs by their own character. Yeah, well, you know, it didn't come out much uh, prior to this in his. Uh, in his games themselves, but like Ollie is a big point and click adventure fan. Oh, yeah. Like, and, and obviously that comes out somewhat in, in his writing, even though he's, you know, he doesn't write puzzles in that sort of adventure <laughs> way. But the fact that he hasn't yet done a point and click adventure game, yeah, is kind of crazy. But he keeps referencing, you know, even in his biography, he references, you know, the Sierra and LucasArts are like his, yeah, um, a lot of his. Uh, backgrounds from a, that. A, yeah, for sure. Uh, so yeah, half, half thirty minutes in, and the character gets a letter, and yep. it's from Plumbing University, saying that uh, he's got unpaid, like he, he never actually paid for his full tuition, yep. and he now has to. He's not making enough money as a plumber. He now has to moonlight as, as you know, another profession, and that's where the red hot comes in. Because yes. this is where he takes on jobs as, like, a hitman. Yes, using using his skills that he has uh, built as a plumber. Yes. You know, he, he starts taking on assassination jobs. And, and it, for such an outlandish idea, it lands well. Yeah, it does. And I think that's where, again, his writing comes into it because that first half hour is not just a tedious oh you're going around plunging toilets and sinks. No, I, I thought you're meeting if this is characters. The game, I'm, I'm, you're meeting characters. You, you, you're, you're understanding more about the the player character themselves, their situation, their personality, and this doesn't go away. Like you still got your day job, and then you just at night you you do like a job or two, and then so. It's sort of like you got two or three plumbing jobs during the day, and then you have one, one maybe two assassination, yeah, missions depending on depending on how how large the mission is, and then you meet some more characters and like. And what I loved about this was that it was a mix of during the day, a lot of that you know, like you were saying, the kind of uh, indigo prophecy, the quantic dream style, yeah, you know. Taking the mundane and taking the mundane and just giving you some some control over it, bringing in conversations, but then that the assassination missions moved into almost a Splinter Cell esque, like adding stealth elements, adding a lot more actiony mm. kind of gameplay to it. Very much so. Without really shifting up the controls too much, it was just they, they did a very good job of contextually, uh, you know, making making you understand. Yep. How a particular control would work in that um, What What I did like is it wasn't, you know, one of those typical assassination things of, you know, you're you're going out and just killing random NPC X. You, you get a full dossier on how bad these people literally are. Like... Well, and, and again, uh, you know, and I, and I, I feel like I'm always gushing about his writing, but... This wasn't like an assassination. This wasn't like so many of those assassination games where you receive that dossier and it's just like some random bad guy, you know. Even with backstory, a lot of the time, and it's not someone straight, that you've been hearing about off, since the first. But that's it. A lot of the time, it's either it's someone you've met, 
or it's someone that you have heard of and you understand the relationships within this town, within this, within your circle of, of people. Yeah. And, and exactly how that all connects in. And that just adds just such an extra layer of meaning mm. to these kills. Yeah. In some cases- And very classily like, done too. Like, they're not- yeah. Well, and I just like that in some cases you're like, oh, yeah, this this, pers- this person's a fucking prick. I'm not like they're, you know, abusing their wife or whatever. Like, I have no problems doing, you know, dealing with this. And that's not even necessarily in the dossier. Again, that's just through your conversations and the way that it's and, all tied in. And context. In. Because you've, you've had con- conversations with these people. You've already comforted his wife. Like- Exactly. In in one of the previous scenes, because it turns out that for this particular one, the, I remember yeah. this one exactly, that you'd already been there earlier that day to, to fix a clog in their toilet. Yeah. And you ended up spending half the time, you know, just sitting on the bed, just listening to, to her story and- and that sort of stuff. Well, and that's then- it. The fact that you the fact that you comforted his wife and clogged the sh- his own shit out of his toilet already really mm. gave you a reason or incentive to to take him down. In what the, in what the, I that did night. think was quite good is you know obviously when I mean I suppose I suppose we can actually name we can name this character. I mean you know it's, it's going back to you know what two thousand. Four two thousand five when this game came out. So if you haven't yeah. played it by now, um, so yeah, Brian didn't have the money to pay for it. There, he said, "Come back later on tonight." And it was after you leave that you get you get given basically on yeah, your yeah. secret phone. Yeah, you know, we we left a dossier at your place. This needs to be done asap. Like needs to be done tonight. Yeah. You, you go home, you find out that it's actually you've got to go back to Brian. Yeah, and take him out because he's actually a really really bad guy like yeah well then you get again additional context additional information that on top of what you know about how he's been treating his wife and how many toilets he's been clogging up all over the city yes i was about to say like the 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 damage the the amount of the amount of damage that he has done to the sewer systems (laughs) across this whole city like because uh, he flushes wet wipes. I mean, yeah, and we just we all know it's not it's not to oh, be done. The fatberg, like that, you have to you have to deal with like one of those one of those sort of things harkening back to you know the the sewer missions from Attack of the Banjo, where you had to go down into the sewer and like yeah, you see good- like this huge iceberg like thing made of just wet wipes and shit and stuff that just, like... <laughs> yeah, that was a fun mission. Um, I had to break it up with a plunger. You know, yeah. kind of whacking it for a while. Well, I liked I liked the way that they... Uh, uh, the, that mission starts as a regular, plunge, like, plumber mission, but then it transitions Turns into, a, into assassinate the assassinate the... Like a, yeah. yeah, they... <laughs> Yeah, essentially. Um, yeah, I like the way they play with that. Oh, God. Um, this brings us to the end of part one of... Yeah, I thought we'd get through it, but, the, the, I mean, we knew we knew that Ollie's, Ollie's games uh, would, you know, there, there are a lot of them. He's, he's got quite a, a history there. So, uh, yeah, that brings us to the end of, of today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed our, our deep dive. Um, hey, weren't we in a weren't we in an impro thing called deep dive? Oh, that's yeah. <laughs> uh, you can find it on the impro <laughs> Facebook page if you go back far enough. <laughs> yeah, I've I've enjoyed this. I, I think this is a fun new uh, thing yeah, for us and, to, to and dive back into. Some for of those our people who haven't heard of about game drivers. Ollie Zanetti, you know it, he's a he's a real person who who made. Real games in Australia. He's a real person who definitely exists, um, and wasn't wasn't made up on the spot at all. No, in fact, uh, to prove that, I think we'll have to try to get him on. We're going to have to try and convince him to come on the show at some point. I don't know. I don't think we'll be able to get it for next week. To we can talk try about his games. We, we can try. We can try. We can try. But uh, at least at some point, I think we need to get Ollie on, even just to do some click pitch. Yeah. Yeah, that, that 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 could be a bit of fun, and then maybe we'll 
we'll be able to help you know help almost come up with the with come the, the next, idea next. Game. yeah 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 wouldn't that be awesome to have a Zanetti Studios game inspired by Bitstorm? So, if you want to find us online, go to podchaser.com slash Bitstorm. You can find all of our previous episodes there. Uh, definitely go check out... Uh, well, I mean, if you dare go and check out last week's episode with Alex Krauss, uh, who is who's toiling away now. In the Vatican. He's at the Vatican. We'll, we'll, we'll maybe give some updates on how that game's going later on. Uh, but then definitely in a more relevant, uh, link, go back to Jim Fishwick's episode from a couple of episodes ago, mm-hmm. uh, where he, he, yeah, brought us the second, second person shooter, uh, history. Yeah. And we will continue next week with Ollie's and Eddie's. As long as we modern- remember. <laughs> I think we will. I think we will. With Ollie's modern, you know, more recent games. Uh, and if you like the music that we play at the start and end of each episode, that is a, a song called Man to Find Self of the Um Containment Failure by the band Kuridas that Ollie Zanetti did not have anything to do with whatsoever. No. 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 I'd love for him to use a Kuridas track in a future song. I feel like it could be up his alley. It could be, but... Even if even if he just you know took inspiration and made a MIDI of it, um, that would be fine. <laughs> That's all right. So thank you again for joining us this week on Bitstorm. I'm Ben Slinger. I'm Trevor Scott. And I'm Ali Zanetti. <laughs> no, that was just me. I was just, I was pretending to be Ali Zanetti. That's not what he sounds like at all. <laughs> That's not what he sounds like at all. We're not going to make any offers. To what Ollie's and any sounds like on this episode. <laughs>